0: What's causing a rabbi's message to resonate with thousands and thousands of people across the world? In September 2023, there was a viral recording going around within Jewish circles that really made waves. It was a rabbi who was speaking to a community in New Jersey discussing what he sees from his seat as it relates to people living above, within, or below their means. And it was shell-shocking. We brought him in, sat him down, ran through the numbers and the message he asked to share in this week's eye-opening episode. In the studio, you'll see and hear from Rabbi Eliezer Gwertzman, who really struck a chord. He did his research. He knows the numbers. Enjoy. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. We're here with Rabbi Gwertzman from Lakewood, New Jersey, originally from Flatbush, New York. And the reason we communicated initially was there was, as they call it, a viral voice note from one of the speeches that you gave. And... You had a very interesting message, and we'll go through that, but money apparently is something that we all need, we all have to work for, or at least most of us. What did you see that led you to giving a speech like that?
1: I can't say there was one thing in particular, but there was, it, it was a number of things that led up to it. I think the way I would like to answer the question is as follows. Back in 2016, someone once mentioned to me that there was a pollster, a very small pollster, that actually predicted the election right. He had predicted that President Trump would win the election, and he got every state right. And they asked him how how, how did you figure it out? Everyone else got it wrong. So he said he realized very early on in the election that the media was very much alienating people for saying that they would vote for for Donald Trump. And people were scared, especially to tell the media, that that's who they intended to vote for. So they would call somebody and ask a question, who who do you vote for? Who do you intend to vote for? And he would say, if they would say Trump, fine. If they would say somebody else, undecided or Clinton, they would ask him a follow-up question. Who do you think your neighbors are voting for? And if the person said that they thought that their neighbors were voting for Donald Trump, they would put that down as a Donald Trump vote. Mm. Because people see the world in what's going on in their glasses, through their glasses. And when it comes to having financial trouble, it takes a lot for someone to walk over to his rov and say, I'm not making it. I'm really not making it. There's usually debt involved. There's usually a lot of Sean bias issues. So if a Rav is going to wait for that to happen before he realizes that there's a problem, the problem is going to be very great. However, what I've noticed in conversations that we had was that there were people who started, many people started mentioning how there's a lot of people who are not making it. And to me, that was a sign that they themselves must be struggling because if, if, if I'm knocking it out of the park, To me, the world is making it. Yes, in theory, I could believe, I understand that it doesn't make sense, but I look at the world a certain way. And being that I started getting a lot of those comments, that was my first indication that I have to really look into this deeper. And once I started speaking to people and asking questions, I realized that there were a lot of people who simply were having a difficult time in today's economy really being able to keep up.
0: It sounds like the problem has gotten worse over the recent years, right? Inflation, prices are going up. From the outside, it's very hard to tell, right? You, you drive by people who have cars that look a certain way, even without it being super fancy, homes. The eyes are deceiving in, in this case. Is that right?
1: Yes. Um, I don't think that's, that's, that's new. We live in a society, we live in an economy. There are credit cards, there are all kinds of ways where people have an ability to spend money that they don't necessarily have. In addition to that, there are many people who have an ability to spend money that they didn't necessarily earn rich parents, rich in laws, and so on. So people walk around and see a lot. And assume that it must be easy. And the reality is that each person has their own story and their own way in how they got there. You mentioned the idea of inflation and you know prices going up. I think it's more than that. I think if you look back, we're in Pasha's Mikates, Paris had a dream about the seven. Fat cows and then the seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows ate the seven fat cows, and you couldn't even notice that the seven skinny cows ate them. What happens when you have seven good years and then seven bad years is that people get very comfortable. And especially in my community where people are young and under many of them are in their upper 20s, they never experience difficulty. So many of them go out to work, whatever they touch turns into gold right they're a 20 percent investor in a building they purchase it for 1.2, they sell it a year later for 1.8, and they're already assuming that the next building that they buy for 2.3 is going to go up to 5.1 and so on and so forth. So what we have is is anything that people are touching is turning into gold number one. number two, even people on the bottom end of the spectrum, let's not forget the federal government dumped thousands of dollars into people's bank accounts, especially many in our community who had large families. They literally found money under every stone. Uh, Schools were giving out free food. It took people time to realize that food prices had gone up. But it's not just that food prices had gone up. People were literally, um, I don't know how it is here in the five towns, but in Lakewood, there were schools giving out platters of chicken from local eateries. You could get whatever you want. You just had to know where to get it. So people were literally you know, pulling up at a school, go, taking home food. There were food stamp cards given out to anyone who's on lunch program, which is many of the middle class. And therefore, people sort of forgot what the real realities are. You fast forward, not only inflation, but the fact that there's large chunks of the economy, large real estate firms, commercial real estate firms that haven't done a deal in a year interest rates are at nine percent or eight percent or wherever they are and people literally can't turn a profit with these kind of of take on these kind of debt and people are are stuck and saddled with buildings obviously the upper class people people who have reserves are able to ride this out for a while but it, it trickles down and it starts trickling down quickly and therefore there's really a lot that's happening here where Over the last number of years, people just got comfortable and did whatever they want without really realizing what they were doing. And it's now really coming back to the reality is really setting in. And that's why I think there are so many people who who feel so stuck and so trapped.
0: So let's go through the numbers. If I come to the rabbi and say, good news, I just received a hefty 5% raise, I'm making upwards of one hundred seventy-five, dollars $180,000 annually, Rabbi. This is not, uh, I'm in a contract, right? For the next five years, they're going to be paying me $180,000 with a 2 to 3% raise annually. And I finally have time to breathe. So, so walk me through the numbers. Give me a reality check. Tell me, w- what am I missing?
1: So, for starters, I think what you're missing is that if someone gets a five percent raise, they're not telling the rabbi because the rabbi is going to have all kinds of things that mm-hmm. he could do with the money. So, the rabbi is the last person that's being told about this. That's funny. But leaving that aside, in the presentation that I gave to my community about this was a little, was slightly unique in the sense that my community consists of young families in starter homes that, as their family grows, needs to move on. And when you take the numbers simply and you look at it from people in that situation who are looking to be able to purchase a home, and many of them are not looking to purchase a 1,730-square-foot buy level. They want something bigger. They want something nicer, especially from communities which are hot real estate markets the number that I used then was $1.2 million, which I think is a fair number for, for a decent size house. With interest rates are where they are, and maybe they've come down a little bit in the last month or two, you're talking a mortgage, assuming you could put down $350,000 of $7,500 a month. If, if that's the case, then you're really dealing with a $90,000 a year um, mortgage, assuming you're leasing t- uh, two cars. Um, being that interest rates are high and leasing payments are tied to interest rates, you're talking between $800 and $1,000 a month per car. And I'm not talking about a Maserati or a Range Rover. You know, a basic Honda Odyssey or whatever else um, people tend to drive. If that's the case, you're adding another $24,000 to the budget plus health insurance, which I think is between ten and $15,000. Taxes on one hundred and seventy five thousand is about forty thousand dollars, so when you start adding up these numbers you're you're up to somewhere around one fifty five you didn't back out of the driveway, you didn't heat your home, you didn't put food on the table, let alone the big expenses that we have in our community of tuitions and clothing i didn't discuss the mitzvah of going to Orlando for Pesach or anything along those lines. So $175,000 for the average person is not going to let him breathe too much.
0: Let's keep going in those numbers. What is the average person making? And assuming they do want their kids to eat, assuming that they need to heat their home, they need to pay tuition, even with somewhat of a break, what? Do they need, if they weren't going to make any changes to the to the lifestyle, what would they need to sustain a lifestyle like that?
1: Okay. I think the reason why this issue is is not, you know, the numbers all make sense, but they don't apply to a lot of people in the sense that a lot of people are in their homes. A lot of the people who are paying higher tuitions have purchased homes five years ago, 10 years ago. And their total mortgage payment, monthly mortgage payment, starts with a two. So they're obviously dealing, they have $60,000 right there a year that they have ways to spend. But even with that, and you start going down the track, you realize very, very quickly that they're out of money. Now, I think from the information that I got, which is what I mentioned when I presented to my community, a person is working for somebody, the maximum that they're making is 150000 If they're really good, it's two hundred. I did get feedback on that. I got phone calls from people after the class went viral, complaining to me that I made it as if it's normal to make $150,000 and that there are many people who are not. Now, when I listened over to the recording, I definitely did say the top, but I wasn't clear enough in stating that that was the top. There are many people who are making 100000 and 110000 I had somebody who met me on a Chalamoy trip and he thanked me for, for, for sharing this as an employer. And he said to me, you know, I pay my employees $120,000 a year. I was under the impression that since I'm supporting them, therefore I have a right to ask them for certain things. And You open my eyes to the fact that I'm not supporting them. Yes, I'm paying them what the market value is, but I'm not necessarily supporting them. And our community needs more funds. Now, as I said, there are a lot of people who are getting funds a lot of different ways. There's tzedakus out there. There's parents that pay certain bills that allow people to be able to to live the lifestyle. But ultimately, it's expensive. and the answer is it's for that reason that a lot of families are resorting to two-income households where most of our grandparents, Zadie, worked and Bobby stayed home. And today, it's, it's almost unheard of. And it, it, this itself leads to a lot of issues. Maybe we'll get back to it. Where mothers are working, the school schedule doesn't exactly provide the daycare that families need, people are left struggling. Children are being put in situations that are not ideal. And this ultimately comes back to this bottom line that if a person is employed, even if he's a good worker, working hard, uh, semi-educated, he's bringing home these kind of numbers. And if his wife is not going to go out to work, families feel that they can't, they can't cover the budget.
0: So someone who is on the top making one hundred fifty to 200000 and is in need of a home, and doesn't have their parents or in-laws or the reserves, sounds like they're sort of locked out of thriving communities, locked out in terms of buying a home. Yes, you can rent, um, you can stay in an apartment, but it's not feasible, and that's, that's, that must be very hard for those families.
1: Yes. We, we, we have, as I mentioned, um, my community is starter homes. Mm-hmm. They're about a thousand square feet, maybe 1,200, 1,100, really, really small bedrooms are small. And, you know, people, three children, four children. Uh, I think when the Younger Light lived in there 30 years ago, they figured out how to put six kids in there. But it, it it is tight. And yes, there are definitely people who are stuck. The hope is that as more and more people get pushed out of the market, maybe prices in our community will fall somewhat. They have done, they have, this has happened in the past. Uh, people think that it could never go down. Um, I'm, I'm living in Lakewood already over 20 years. It happened in 2008, 2009 that the market corrected itself 20%. Interest rates, I don't believe, could stay at this level forever. So, you know, there is a possibility that at one point people will be able to get into homes. But I think what families have to realize, and yes, there are a certain amount of families that are locked out of homes but i think what people have to realize and i think this is probably the most important thing to realize is that smaller homes can work and they can ride you can ride that out for a number of years and you look in our in our communities where people have larger families and a little bit larger homes a lot of them purchased the homes that you wouldn't look at today when they were 26 27 28 and i know the numbers that they paid back then sounded like pocket change but when i purchased my home it was very hard for me i put together i put out every last penny and i pushed it together and that's why i think people have to realize that life is about decisions and yes you may look at all your neighbors who have 3200 square foot homes and you may feel that i'm not ready to purchase a home unless it's that and if that's the case You may have to rent apartments, whatever it is. But for a lot of families, coming off that dream and taking a reality check of what you can afford and buying a home you can't afford can be the answer. And as the years go on and you're locked into whatever rate and house size, as prices go up again, you're now the guy who's locked in at X and options will open for you. But don't allow your dreams to get in the, the way of reality.
0: We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, let me paint a picture. It's the end of 2023. Many people are looking for and cashing in on tax deductions. And I learned about something that more and more people are doing. Get this. They're putting money into a charitable entity without actually having to allocate the money to a specific cause. How does it work? I'm glad you asked. It's something called the Donors Fund. You create an account in under 60 seconds, and any money that you place into the account is instantly eligible for an immediate tax deduction. You can then decide throughout 2024 and beyond where exactly you'd like to allocate that money. It's absolutely free. No hidden charges, no funny business. So if you love running around pulling your hair out, trying to find where you have donation receipts across dozens of organizations, the Donors Fund is not for you. If you want everything streamlined, one place, look up the Donors Fund. It's all your donations, one button away. We're talking about a robust online platform, a super friendly mobile app. It's like a bank-like system for your charitable giving. Really cool, really slick, really neat. There's loads more. I don't want to overwhelm you in week one. They offer checkbooks, debit cards, investment options, legendary customer service, and so much more. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to visit thedonorsfund.org slash koshermoney. Create an account. takes under 60 seconds. I did it about 35 seconds. I'm fast. The link's in the show notes. Click around the website. There's tons more I didn't even explain, discuss, so many different features and services. Take advantage of it. So many, so many people are, and there's no reason you should not be doing the same, okay? Thedonorsfund.org slash koshermoney. Thank me later do it while you still have time in 2023. If you're listening to this in 2024, it's not too late. There's tons you can do with it. Check them out. And now back to this week's episode. Let's talk about the means, right? Are are people living above their means? Are people living below their means? Are people spending and saving? What what what's your message? And, and you talked about this in, 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 in that speech, but what's your message as it relates to living and spending?
1: Honestly, it's hard for me to know exactly how people are living. Um, this is not a conversation that I have with most people in my community. The conversations that I have regarding money primarily have to do with people who are not making it. If a person is making it, again it's 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 not a discussion i don't believe that people save as much money as they should but again it's hard for me to really you know put my finger on that uh per se because again i don't also primarily i'm dealing with younger people i don't necessarily see what happens to them when they get to happiness they very often have moved out and at that point they're dealing with obviously much larger expenses but From what I hear, there are definitely many people that are overspending what they can afford and are really not living in a reality that as they get into their 40s and 50s and have to make weddings, expenses are going to really creep up on them. You mentioned
0: two leased cars, right? If Dave Ramsey, who we did interview, heard that, he would, you know, old school slap you over the head. What do we need to do to change that reality? Because for many, taking a car that's perfectly good, but two years old is a little bit of a black mark, right? We, we've we cultivated a community where the norm is brand new leased cars. To even tell someone... I mean, maybe now a little bit because the the car market became so crazy. But four or five years ago, if you told someone, "Yeah, yeah, I bought a I bought a used car. It had thirty thousand miles on it. I spent twelve thousand dollars, but I don't have any monthly leasing payment," they say, "Excuse me, you mean there's no leather seats in your car and and it was used?" I mean, I personally would be embarrassed to say that, and I think that's. A reflection. I I don't think I'm unique in that. Is that right?
1: You know, you are far from unique in that. Yes, they, they, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, and I think one of the lessons that we have to take out of what's going on today is understanding what we're doing when we're leasing a car for one ninety nine a month.
0: I don't know. I don't think one ninety nine is an option anymore.
1: It, that's that's my point. Meaning when. You get used to something, whatever it is, it's very, very difficult to roll it back. so when a person is leasing a car for one ninety nine because I could, and hey, the government is paying me to drive an electric car, and I could drive it for eighty nine dollars a month, so why not? There is a why not to it, and the why not to it is that you're going to get used to a certain standard and it can't be rolled back and I think if people understand that more so, someone mentioned to me from my community he said you know when I leased my first car my grandfather was very annoyed and I tried explaining to him it was $2.19 a month what's the problem and I think now I'm starting to understand what his problem is because he watched this happen cycles and when we get used to something there's no rolling back And and I think we sort of, as a community, I could tell you in my community, um, since this was spoken about and out in public, as of a few weeks ago, in two and a half months, there were three people out of 400 that released their cars. And everyone came out and said, I'm not leasing. I bought it out. I bought it out. I bought it out. I think when people stop and realize what they're doing to themselves, that's sort of how people begin to start rising above it. Because... You start saying to yourself, "Yeah I, I gotta do this. why? at what cost? what's this costing me?" and I, I think that's sort of the way out and if I can mention something to go off a little bit on a tangent, you know every bit of spending that we do comes from somewhere, meaning as follows: if you're spending eight ninety nine a month on a lease and you're making an hour. There's a half a day's work that went into that. And very often for a lot of families, when they start adding up some of these expenses, because again, this doesn't come in a vacuum. There's a certain level or society class that I'm trying to identify myself with. And to do that probably costs me tens of thousands of dollars a year because it's clothing. It's potentially where, where, and how I vacation. It's what kind of car I drive, what kind of house I have, what kind of furniture is in that house, and this is costing me tens of thousands of dollars. And when I stop and think about it, even if I could afford it, I have to ask myself a question: How am I affording it? Am I sending my wife out to work? Do I have a second side business that, when I finally get home and I'm exhausted, but I'm doing Amazon on the side or whatever else I'm doing, there's a price to that. There's a relationship with my children. It's affecting my marriage. And sometimes we have to, if we would just stop and ask ourselves one second, I'm bringing, my primary job brings in A, my wife's job brings in B, and my side income brings in C. If I could roll back my spending and therefore not have to do C, what would that mean to my learning? What would that mean to my relationship with my children? And what would that mean to my marriage? And realize that driving that car plus wearing that custom made suit, matching my children from specifically that store, is costing me money. And it's not just costing me money, it's costing me my life. And I think if people started thinking along those lines, the 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 need, all of a sudden starts disappearing. Because is this really worth it for me? Could you imagine if my wife could be home every day? Now, there are many women who have to get out of the house. But could you imagine if my wife's job gave her the flexibility that every time a child of mine is six, she could just stay home? Or every day when my child comes home, my my wife is there to greet that child? Or I'm home every single day at X time because I'm not running after that client that keeps me at work till 8 o'clock? three nights a week, because I don't need the $20,000, $30,000 that he's providing and it's not worth it for me. There's, there's a member of my shul who told me this point blank. There are clients where he's not interested in because he knows they will require the pressure and the time that he's not ready to give. And he's happy where he is. And I think if we started, if we took out a pen and paper, forget the budgeting aspect of it. And realized how much discretionary spending we have and how much it's costing us in a personal life. I don't know how good that car sounds when we look at it from that perspective. Well
0: said. Yeah. Our sages say, Ezuhu Gibber Yitzray, right? Who's someone who's strong, someone who conquers that that evil inclination. And it's very, very relevant here, right? Because Sometimes, when someone wins a war, wins a battle, they're standing on top of the mountaintop and they're declared a hero. Here, you win in silence. Your success is not publicized. And in order to win, you need to be a geber, you need to be strong. I almost want to start this movement where you open up the Jewish magazine, and every week we feature somebody who made a conscious decision to use a stroller from five years ago. And they, they, they didn't want to uh, purchase the newest Bugaboo or whatever it's called. They went into their garage, they dusted off a stroller, and they said, it works, I'm using it. And they're not just helping their own family, they're helping their community, because that can start a trend in saying, hey, look, I'm driving a 2012 Camry. I don't have the 2024 Camry. Sort of like putting that on spotlight, the fact that only three people released a car, it is a tremendous success. Those are the thoughts going through my head.
1: If I could just add to it, in, you know, in the statement that you said from the Mishnah, there's another statement there. Ezu Asher, who's rich, hasameach b'chalka, who's happy with his portion. When I was younger and was taught that, sounded like it sounded cute you know the older I get the more I appreciate that passage in really the sense you ask a child do you want to become rich yeah of course why because I'll be able to buy whatever I want and then eh. but what's the answer after and then and then so you go on vacation and then You hope the child has enough brains to say, and then I will be happy. Because ultimately, what we're searching for is happiness. Mm. Somebody who has the ability to build happiness from within is able to push an old stroller or drive a 2012 Camry and can be happy with that is richer than the richest man in America who's not happy.
0: I had a counselor in camp. He's a Rebbe in Darchei Torah, Rebbe Tzvi Medetzky. And whenever someone asked him, how are you doing? He says, I've never been better. I'm living the dream. And I started saying that. And from time to time, I will say that. And people are always shocked when you say that. Whether or not you mean it, they go, what do you mean? You're, you're, you're good? Like, you're, you're not striving for more? I said, what more do I need? I have everything I need. And and it's like this. I don't know if it's an American culture or just society as a whole, where we're we're always trying to get more, right? We're we're never happy. Rabbi Breitowitz talked about Pepsi's old campaign: "Drink Pepsi, get stuff." We always want stuff, right? We're 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 never content, and even when we do get that new device, we're happy, and then two days later, it's it's just like merges with our current lifestyle, and we've we've advanced what we need and. Let's talk about the needs versus, versus the, the wants. You had an, an, an amazing message as it related to that.
1: You mentioned the idea of, of, of really people always wanting and needing more. I think that's part of a DNA. And I think we were created with that DNA for a very good reason. I don't know about you. I would rather stay in bed when my alarm clock rings. I wake up because I have things to do. There's things I want to accomplish, whether it's going to shul and daven, but more than that, there's things that I want to do every single day. In klihedas Shleima tells us it's kinas ish Ultimately, what drives the economy is that drive to want to be successful and to want to do. But I think the answer to the question is, we have to have goals. We need goals that don't revolve around money. Unfortunately for too many people, they get up in the morning to one day be able to fly private. And that's the reason why they get up in the morning and that's what drives them to work. And that's what keeps them there late because one day they'll be able to fly private. And that's their goal, sole goal in life. They may not admit it, but that's their sole goal in life and everything that comes with that lifestyle. When we have personal goals, personal growth. And a goal in and of itself is to be able to rise above that and to realize that I define myself. My bank account does not define who I am. That itself is a goal in itself. And now I have to be. How many people wake up in the morning and strive to have a name as an honest businessman? That my name should be Synonymous with honesty. Don't tell me once a great saying. You have one chance at your name, don't mess it up. Once a person goes down a path, people start questioning his integrity and his honesty. He can never get that back. It takes work and it takes dedication. How many people have that goal? If a person would wake up every day and that would be his goal, that's a tremendous accomplishment to be able to say, I once told somebody I was sitting, listening to a monetary dispute. And I said, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to tell you who, I'm not going to tell you what. But two sides had a dispute. And the one thing they agreed on is that you're an honest guy. And the smile that put on this person's face when he heard that. But that's also a goal. And when we talk about our religion and being erlich, and being honest and being a good Jew, Unfortunately, not enough people have a goal to be known and to live all 613 mitzvahs that I aced all 613. And I think if you look at our grandparents who came by and large, or already great grandparents who by and large came from war torn Europe, many of them were not big Talmudic the hacham. They didn't know a lot of territory, they didn't have a chance to learn. But if there's one thing that they all had was a goal to be good Jews, keep all 613 mitzvahs. And I think that a lot of the reason why we have the problems that we have is that that's not on people's goals. It's not important. And you talk about featuring people in magazines, I think besides the old Camry, to be able to ask them, so what are your goals? What are your aspirations? And I think You'll realize that a lot of these people have other goals and aspirations. Because if you don't have other goals and aspirations, and we're asking you to drive a 2012 Camry, that means you're asking people to accept that they work to eat and eat to work. And that's something that's very difficult. We don't have that in us. But if I'm working to eat so that I could be a God fearing Jew, I'm working to eat. So I could treat everybody with dignity. I'm working to eat to be the best parent that I could be. Those are internal things. And getting back to who's rich, someone who's happy with his portion, that's how you're happy with your portion. Because now you're living the life without knowing. And to ask you a question, what's called needs and what's called have-tos, I think is a very, very difficult question. Because for one person is a luxury, for another person is a necessity. But I think if there's one thing that we have to realize is yesterday's luxury is today's necessity. And the more we realize that, the better off we'll be in the long run.
0: Mentioned that once it becomes a necessity, you don't even enjoy it anymore, right?
1: Correct. I'll share with you a story. I once, had, um, I once w- went on a trip uh, to, for a meeting out of town. I left very, very early to the airport. It, was, it coincided with midwinter vacation, or as many of your listeners may know it as school week, the week they're off from school. And a father asked me if I could take two of his children um, to the airport. They, they were going to Florida for the vacation, if, if I could drive them to the airport. I believe the child was either 15 or 16 years old, just judging by the look. And on the trip, they were talking to each other. And the child said to the other child, Going to Florida is really dumb. You just can't stay in Lakewood for the winter vacation. So at 16, this child was already burnt out of Florida, but just understood that as a cultural thing, you can't stay in Lakewood. I think that's very sad because when he or she is going to get married and is looking for a few days to get away, Florida is not an option anymore. So then we go to Cancun and then eventually Africa, and then it's Peru. And then it's North Korea and doesn't end. And that's part of what we sort of sign up for.
0: We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, let me tell you about Twillery's performance coat. I'm wearing it now if you're watching on video. This isn't your grandfather's old coat. Throw that thing away. It's something better. First off, it fits right. It's not too tight. It's not too loose. You can throw it on over a shirt, a sweater. It has this cool detachable hood. You can snap it up when the weather's acting up, sun shines, you throw it off. But what I like about it is it doesn't feel stiff or bulky, okay? So if I'm running out on errands, casual night, it moves with me, not against me. You could even make it tapered along the side that has these like tabs. Speaking of the inside, it has this soft fleece stuff. I think that's the word officially, scientifically. And it's soft It looks sharp. It feels like I'm not trying too hard. I don't get sweaty in it. There's a sale now. It's $199. If you're a first-time shopper, take $18 off with promo code CHAI, C-H-A-I. Twillery.com slash kosher money. Links in the show notes. It comes in four colors, blue, black, navy, and olive. Six different sizes. I've said enough. Take a look at it. If you're in the market for an awesome code at a great price, if you're in the market for an amazing code at a terrible price, this code's not for you. If you're in the market for a terrible code at an awesome price, this code's not for you. See what I did there? Work with me, not against me. Just like this code, all ad libbed, beautiful. See you later. Now back to this week's episode. Our culture, even even Jewish culture, is surrounded by enticing ads, right? Luxury vacations. You look at ads for newlyweds and the bedroom furniture, you know, as someone in EMS, I've seen many homes, right? The homes that are being featured, the the rooms that are being featured are really not, it's like for the top 0.5%. And that is what's being exposed to the minds of everyone. And maybe only a small percentage can afford it. But what these ads are saying is this is normal, and this is what you should be striving for. And if this, this is the nicest jewelry, and buy this, and buy this. And economically, it makes sense in the sense that these are the companies that have high profit margins, so they have money to spend, so they're able to pay to advertise, and that's who's going to see it. But most of us can't afford it. But we live in a world where we, we, we make believe that this is normal.
1: I may be in the minority in this belief. Um, many conversations that I've had regarding this specific issue, the reaction people have is we have to somehow regulate it. We live in America, we live in a free society, a free market. I don't believe that regulating is the answer to the question that you just raised. What I think the answer has to be is that we have to be able. Each teach ourselves and our children That not everything we see means we have to get Meaning we need ways And let's start with ourselves Where we can very realistically look at something And in a healthy way Say it's not for me That's not, I, I don't need that And the truth is And I'll apologize to the audience before I say this But I think it's important We expect from our high school children that when they go to yeshiva or school or wherever they go, that they're going to rise above this. We expect them not to smoke. We expect them not to drink. And we definitely expect them not to take illegal drugs. And many of our children, unfortunately, at some point, whether we want to admit it or not, are going to be subjected to smoking, drinking, and even in some cases, illegal drugs. And we expect our 14, 15, 16-year-old child to rise above it. Why? Because you know what's right. If we expect that of our children, can we start expecting that of ourselves? Yes, you see something. It's enticing. I know a mother thinks that smoking is disgusting, but it's enticing. But we expect our children to rise above it. We have to figure out a way to take that same expectation that we have for our children into ourselves and say, we have to rise above it. These advertisements will be there. These companies are doing it for a reason. And the reason is that they're making money. And we can't expect them to stop. But at the same time, if we can figure out a way to energize ourselves and maybe as a community to give the backbone to the middle class to accept. As I was saying earlier, other ways of defining who we are as people, then that's the only way that we're going to succeed, because I don't believe there's any, any way to stop it. I think it's here to stay. And if that's the case, we, we have to have the ability to really understand who we are, what we are, and the same way that alcohol can wreck a person's life, overspending, in many ways, can wreck a person's life in the same way.
0: From your perspective, how do you view moving out of town? Obviously, I'm talking in a case where someone doesn't have to be next to family day in, day out. They have the ability to do it. Do you think in today's economic times and a lot of the societal pressures that may be a little bit more relaxed there, do do you see that as a viable
1: option? Yes, I think that's a very difficult question to answer that question sort of for the masses. I think there are definitely many miles to being out of town. And I I should say that I work for Chaim Eruchim, which is an organization that helps people with end-of-life issues. And part of my job is to speak to Rabbanim in out-of-town cities. I've been to almost all of them. So I'm not one of these guys that sit here and say that World Jury ends at the Verrazano Bridge, and then we have a fight between Lakewood and the Five Towns, which side World Jury is on. I am well aware of the miles of -of out-of-town communities, and there are many. Um, However, just a few points before answering the question. I think a lot of people don't realize the conveniences that are here, and I don't just mean a pizza shop at every corner. For people's children, there's very often people take it for granted um, let's say here in the five towns, you have Yeshiva Dar-Hitara providing all kinds of remedial services and so on that schools out of town simply don't have the from professionals or the resources or whatever it is. By us in Lakewood as well, there are unbelievable resources not only for special needs children, regular children who just need a little bit of a nudge and a little bit of help along the way, and. Before a family picks themselves up and moves to one of these places, they have to sort of understand what they're giving up. In addition to that, for a lot of children, once they're past a certain age, it's extremely difficult to make that move. They're a New York Yankee through and through, and you're going to push them into a place where the world is slower paced uh, for for children and especially girls. It it, it could be very, very difficult for them to make that adjustment. In addition to that, even for adults, there are many adults that unfortunately do have sometimes emotional issues that Baruch Hashem are managed okay and pulling them away from family can be sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. In addition, there are many families who aren't making it here and decide, you know what, I'll move to Cleveland, they have vouchers. If you don't have a parnasa a went a way of making a living, before you pick yourself up and move to Cleveland, vouchers are no vouchers. Cost of living, standards of living is not the answer to it all. So I think the out-of-town idea, yeah, definitely. If you have someone who has an Amazon business that's making enough money that if you, with vouchers and everything else, it could work, and here he's simply not making it, it it could be an option, and maybe it's a good option. And I have friends who did it, and are very happy that they did it. But I think it's something, it's 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 a tremendous undertaking that people are taking when they pick themselves up and move out of town. And I think it's important that families realize it before they do it.
0: Let's talk about somebody in their high teens, low twenties. After seeing what you've seen so far, what steps would you recommend they take to prepare themselves for success? I once went into yeshiva when they were in base Medrash, and I said, oh, do you want me to discuss financial responsibility? And the head of the yeshiva said, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. So with that in mind, what, what could we educate our children, maybe our older children, when they have a better understanding, to be financially successful? I don't mean in terms of their bank account, but financially responsible.
1: I think there are three lessons. Um, I think I touched on all of them throughout, but I think if, you know, a parent is sitting by a Shabbos table, I think if there's one thing I could say, you know, the parents don't realize this. There's, there's two ways to be your children. There's one to preach to them, and there's one to schmooze with them. And when parents preach to their children, this is wrong, this is right, this is whatever, very often children go, especially teenagers, go into this mode. Daddy's always right. I've heard this from many people in my community. They're in their 20s. They say, you know, the hardest part of getting into your upper 20s is that not only do you start realizing that your father was right all along, but now you start seeing yourself being your father. That's very painful, as I deal with my children. But teenagers are like that. And I think what fathers don't always realize is you don't have to preach to them. You can schmooze with them about different mundane things by a Shabbos table and really give them lessons for life. As long as you're thinking about it before, you can really give very strong lessons for life without preaching. And really for a rough, it's the same thing. Not everything has to come from the pulpit. In general conversations, very often you could accomplish a lot more with somebody because we're having a conversation and oh yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think if, Parents had in mind three points to give over to their children. Um, Number one, as we said, money is addictive. Luxuries are addictive. The halacha and shulchanarach, we all know this halacha, that a person who had money and lost it, when we give them charity, when we give them tzedakah, we have to give them on the level that they were used to. And the example that is brought down is, even if they had a white horse with slaves running in front of them, we have to provide for them that from charity, because today they need it. Just think for one second, imagine you're standing on Broadway here, and you see a guy running down the street with people in front of him, with a white horse that practically says corporate sponsor, whatever it says, and you know that every penny was given to him from charity. And he's running down the block looking like he owns the world. How sad is that? But the lesson is there, that every bit of luxury that you take becomes a necessity. It's addictive. Drugs are addictive, cigarettes are addictive, and luxuries are addictive. And it is so difficult to turn in that brand new car. So I think lesson number one, children have to be taught from a young age, is that when people push luxuries higher and higher, not only do they stop enjoying them, they need them. And I don't think our young children get this message enough. Number two, as I I said earlier, every penny that we spend is coming from somewhere. And to point out to our children, look at that guy. Look how much time he spends with his children. Look how good their marriage is. Look how relaxed he looks. Guy doesn't have a problem in the world. And to be ma- to our children, that they all see the cars. We can't hide it from them. But from 18, 19, 20, 22, for them to understand that it came from somewhere and to be able to point out every once in a while, yeah, Uncle Max might have a lot of money, but look what he pays for it. Look at his marriage. Look at his life. Look at his stress levels. you ever had a good conversation with Uncle Max, and to point it out again, obviously not to put down people, but to show that to the children, I think is something, and last but not least, to explain to them that there are other priorities and pursuits in life besides just having money and to point it out to them being a good father, being a community man, being a Bahessed, being an honest person being. A good Jew, being a God-fearing Jew. This all takes time and this all takes dedication. And the more you're dedicated to other things, the less you even notice and the less you even care. And if I could just give you an example: you walk into an elementary school, and the elementary school goes through different, different, every year in elementary schools, they have like a different craze. So maybe you remember this. Crazy Bones, made it to Lakewood a few times. The kids are all collecting Crazy Bones. And you see kids walking around with bags of Crazy Bones. Are you jealous in the slightest? No, because it doesn't talk to you. The more you work on self-satisfaction out of real and meaningful things, the less the craze of money even means to you. And the same way in an elementary school, whatever it is, whatever their things are, Girls are into their dolls. You're never jealous of your sister about her doll collection. It doesn't mean anything to you. And to them, it's so real. That's what money is. And the more we can, it's not easy, but the more we develop an interest and a drive in self and putting an emphasis on things that really matter, the less the stuff bothers us.
0: Beautiful. We'll be right back to this week's episode. But first, a message from Kol El Chabad. Kol El Chabad is part of Israel's emergency response on the front line. This team is delivering tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands of cooked meals to frightened families and shelters across the country. From the first hours, all wheels were moving at Kol El Chabad, and they were turning out meals as fast as possible to help people in need. So if you have the ability to make a tax-deductible year-end donation... To Kol Chabad, please do. It's a very worthy organization. They've been around since 1788, and they're still going strong in 2023 and 2024. Give what you can. Incredible work. I know the team there personally now. I visited their headquarters. Now they have shops set up across the country. Literally kitchens, clothing, all types of support, right? You have orphans. You have people that just have no family whatsoever. They are assisting them, they're helping them, and they need us. People from across the world, if you can give $10, $20, $100, click the link in the show notes, kolachabad.org, slash kosher money. It goes a long way. You have the ability to make a recurring donation. Tons and tons of people are giving $18 a month, $100 a month. You can set it and forget it and get the mitzvot, get the reward in the next world, but sleep well at night knowing that you're helping the people of Israel. Now back to this week's episode. So we have a few a few minutes left. I, I want to touch on a, a couple of other things. Looking back to the 80s and 90s, I mean, I was young. I was born in 86. But I'd like to think that things were simpler in the sense that we weren't driven by technology. We didn't have smartphones in our pockets. Do you think people are working more, toiling more, being distracted more, or no? televisions existed back in the 80s and 90s, newspapers, it's just a different medium. How do you look at the two side by side?
1: I think the difference between a a television and, and, and a phone is people sat down and watched television and then got up and stopped. Today people get emails from work at any time. It doesn't make a difference what you're doing. Think about all the different things that people do with their families, sit down, eat supper, do homework with their children, The emails don't stop. So, yes, we definitely have gotten busier and we definitely have our challenges. When you bring up the 80s, the thing that comes to mind is I was born a little bit before 1986. And in fact, I remember 1986. Growing up in Flatbush, I remember it clearly. When we played outside in the summer around a quarter to six, the father started coming home from work holding those big anti shake cases. Um, from the F train, and about 10 minutes later, after a child's father would come home from work, the mother would come out, call the child in, they would eat supper, they would do homework, and only them would come out again. Unfortunately, there's many reasons. We have to stay at work later. A lot of our communities I could talk for Lakewood, 10, 15, 20 years ago, people commuted. There was no local economy. Many people had no choice but to have long commutes and picked uh, Lakewood as a place where they wanted to raise their children, but paid a very heavy price for it. And from what I see, people have lost that whole understanding and drive to want to raise their children and to be the best fathers that they could be. I always tell people in my community, you're not embarrassed. To turn to your wife and ask your wife, what did my two and a half year old just say? You don't understand your own child? But most of us don't. And I'm as guilty as it. um, I'm as guilty of this as everybody. We've lost that complete respect and really um, society expectation of a father being a real father, being home for his children. You know, in Lakewood now, there are a lot of local offices and businesses, big businesses that opened recently. And instead of people showing up at nine and being out at five, people don't show up till 10, so they don't have to leave till 6.30. And there's really no emphasis at all being put on as a communal level of the special relationship that people could build with their children, doing homework with them day in, day out, boys, girls, sitting down to them for supper, hearing their jokes, hearing their frustration, understanding who they are, People your age don't realize your child is seven years old jumping all over the couch, making you nuts. In 10 years, she'll be in seminary. It's over. (laughs) We have so few years to build that connection with our children. And as a society, we don't do it. And I think when you look at the 80s, more than just the distractions that we have, it's the society norms when it comes to the special opportunity we have as parents to be there for our children day in and day out the way they were is something that I think um, got lost and I think if we could bring that back I think that will solve a lot of our other issues not only the monetary one but understanding our children can avoid so many issues you can't get into a therapist now in our community um, unless you have big pull knows how many of these issues could have been avoided if parents really understood their children and weren't dumping them in daycare for hours and hours on end. But we don't We don't appreciate that. That's, that's not put on a pedestal at all. And I think, again, I'm not saying not to go to work, but to put time in a day that between 5 and 7 I'm there, 5.20 and 7.15, I'm there for my kids. I put my kids to sleep, not because my wife can't function, because It's fun to put my kids to sleep. I get to hear them. I get to tell them a story. I get to, you know, as they start daydreaming a little bit and hearing what they have to say. Well, unfortunately, as a community, we've totally lost it.
0: It's interesting. I've done so many, so many episodes, and I've never had like a hard break. But you're speaking about kids. My wife has a Hanukkah party. And I know she's probably texting me. And, and selfishly, I could ask more questions. I do have it. Um, so we do have to wrap up. And and it's chaval, because I have so many good questions. We might have to do a round two. But A, if someone does have a follow-up question, is there an email address? Is it go to your local Orthodox rabbi? Sometimes people like to, when when a guest says something in particular, would you prefer that they come spend the Shabbos and Shul to to get in touch with you. But I don't want to add more to your plate. I'm cognizant that you're probably very...
1: They could email me at rabbiguerzman at gmail.com. So okay. that's R-A-B-B-I-G-E-W-I-R-T-Z-M-A-N at gmail.com. And I will try to get back to them at the earliest time that I'm able.
0: Amazing. Um, And, and lastly, what, what would be your, your closing remark, your rabbi? You see things behind closed doors, in front of closed doors, in public, in private, without naming names. Is there is there something we didn't cover that you think would be a, a lasting message? Even though you've given very very impactful and thoughtful messages until now,
1: I could just finish off with two things, and I don't want your wife to get too upset, so we're gonna wrap this up really quickly. Uh, number one, I think as a community, we have an obligation. There's one question of how we spend, and what we do? And that's a question. Don't email rabbegewertzman at gmail.com. Talk to your local, Rav, someone who knows you well, who can really help you with that. But having said that, many people in our community take it a step further. Within their social circles, they're sitting outside in a bungalow colony. They're talking by a kiddush and shul. And they talk about things Like, this is basics. If you don't do this, you're a neb. You're a loser. There's no other way to do it other than this. It is so worth it to lease a car because otherwise you're going to spend your life by the mechanic. And people say these things in public forums. And I think more than driving the car, these kind of comments are what really drives the people and are really tangible and really hurtful. And I think if everyone in our community spent a few minutes thinking about how obnoxious do I sound to the person struggling the most, I think that could make a tremendous difference. Let us start off spending what we spend, but keeping it to ourselves. And most important, not making it like anyone who doesn't do it, simply miss the boat. I think that's where most of the pressure comes. And second thing, if I could mention, Hashem, In the community, over the last few weeks, we've had financial planners come into the community and really sit down with people. And I've had more than one person come over to me and say, we realize if we would have just been smarter five years ago, we could afford a house today. And especially to the young people. It's painful not to be able to afford a house. It's even more painful when you realize that it was decisions that you made. It was that car. It was that two days in Miami that it wasn't good enough to stay in. I had to stay over there, and I blew $15,000. And if I would have not done that five years, I would have $75,000 now, and I would have had a down payment two years ago, and look where I am. We need priorities. We need to understand what our financial goals are, what's important in life. And if we can't afford something, we can't afford it. The most important thing is don't let yourself look back and say, "I could have afforded it." I didn't allow myself to, because that really hurts. Thank you.
0: Appropriate to end off with Ezehu Chacham Haraya Sanilid, right? Some who who is a wise person, someone who sees the future, and I'm optimistic that this conversation will bezras Hashem, with God's help, help many, many people. So thank you so much, Rabbi Gortzman,
1: and thank you again for having me.
0: That's a wrap on this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed. Please support our sponsors. You'll find them in the links below. Kol Chabad, Twillery, and our newest sponsor, The Donors Fund. Links in the show notes. Thank you to our friends at Living Smarter Jewish. Living Smarter Jewish is your one-stop financial resource. If you have questions related to debt, in search of an advisor, need guidance, what credit card should I go after. I have medical debt. They have the answers. You can email them. It might take a couple of days. They do get a ton of emails from people across the world. Use them. Thank you to our friends at Meshpacha. Bonus content on Meshpacha.com from our episodes. Thank you to everyone at Living L'Chaim. And now for the tip of the week. Did you know, and I'll link to it below, we have reading resources. So, I have books that I love, about five of them. We have guests that have recommended books across the years, and we compiled everything. We put them into a link on Living Chaim's website. So if you are in the market for a book on finance in different categories or just a book that I really love, story-based, check it out. Click the link in the show notes. And it took some time putting this together. Thank you to Aliza who made that happen. And we couldn't do this without you. So, gearing up for a big 2024 if you're listening to this in 2026. I hope we had a big 2024 and 25. Until next time, I'm Ellie Langer. Keep your money kosher. Bye-bye. Living L'Chaim.